Welcome to the St Emlyn's podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm still Simon Carley. Even after the summer, Simon, even after a long, occasionally hot, sometimes wet summer, we are back. It's a new term. It's time for us to get back in the routine. We've both been on holiday and doing a bit of work. Have you been having a nice couple of months? It's been all right, actually. Um, been really busy. Just come back from Bude in Cornwall, had a wonderful time, did lots and lots of activities. Didn't have to call the air ambulance or end up in a hospital, which is always a bonus. Especially with the sort of high danger activities I know you like. I tend to enjoy the reading of books, sitting by the sea type thing. And this is a big moment, Simon. You now have two children who have left the nest and are both away at university. I remember back when we first started this podcast some, what, 10 years ago? Who'd have thought we'd get to this stage? But now you are footloose and fancy free, yourself and, and the good lady professor, uh, how does it feel to be childless? Um, early days, um, but yeah, it's, it's a little bit quiet here. But yeah, sad but great. Also fantastic news. Um, number two is just starting medicine in Nottingham. So following the family business, which is great. You managed not to dissuade her. I'm not surprised. And let's just think a little. I know as dean of the college, you're not here in an official capacity. This is very much St Emlyn's, which you have done before, during and hopefully after that, for many years to come. But there's a lot going on, isn't there, in the world? And the big hot topic, it seems to me at the moment, is the the role of non-doctors in the emergency department. Would you mind just talking to that a little bit? Because I think it's a really hot topic. And as I've got you, why not just say, I mean, where do you see ACPs and physician associates fitting in in emergency medicine? Because Twitter, or X as we now have to call it, seems to be going crazy. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? And I'm obviously not going to talk policy on here um, for obvious reasons. But, you know, I suppose my perspective as, as, as dean and the college's perspective, really, is that um, things like ACPs and PAs exist. They, they, they are real things. I've met them. Um, I've worked with them. And they work in emergency departments across the country. And therefore, it is something which we have to look at. From a formality point of view, there's been a number of consultations dictated by either the GMC or the Department of Health, etc., to say, look, these things exist you've got to have a look at it. And as Dean and, the, and as the college, we're not going to debate that on Twitter is one of the first things. We're not going to have a long conversation and set policy on Twitter. But there's a number of short life working groups and the academic uh, groups within the college and the vice presidents of the president are all looking at this at the moment. It is a complex area. I understand and I'm, I am actually listening on X because I'm getting quite a bit of information through that because I'm trying to understand all the different perspectives out there. But we need to find a way through. It is complicated, but there is a lot of work going on. But I'm not going to debate it or answer it on Twitter, guys. No matter how many times you ask me to say, put a statement out today to answer my particular question. I'm sorry, I can't do that. I do appreciate people have got things going on, but it needs a proper formalised long term plan. And I think the thing I picked up on there is that the college is looking at this because it has to. And it has to come up with an answer because it's being asked by some very important people to consider it. This isn't at the whim of a couple of individuals who think it's a good idea. It's national policy that people are looking to the colleges to work out whether it's implementable. And we all know why people want to have non-doctors working in emergency departments and other places. We can train people quickly and, and all those other things we're very aware of. But the college, I guess, has a lot going on behind the scenes that we just simply don't see. Um, yeah, that's probably true. And, you know, within that group, the, the really important group that you've, you've not specifically mentioned, but implied is, you know, we need to look after all the people. And that includes the trainees. And we need to make sure that the opportunities, the quality of training, the diversity of our experiences and the next generation of consultants and the future of the specialty. It has a broad picture now. 
Um, it's not just about the doctor pathway, but how do all of these things integrate and interlink, support each other? And in, at times, how do we uh, manage the conflicts? All of those things are important. And the college's perspective on that is clearly very important. There are other groups acting in this area as well. And there are other competing organisations like trusts, other organisations representing other specialty bodies like the GMC, like the Department of Health and negotiating this. Well, let me tell you, it's quite tricky. But I really hope that people who've listened to the podcast and have been with us for a period of time will understand that, uh, may I say, Simon, I, I know that you and Adrian as president are very much on the side of emergency departments and emergency physicians and people who are training in emergency medicine. Uh, and although I understand completely your, well, dare I say, rather political response, because you have to be, but I feel in safe hands. I don't feel like there's any knee-jerk responses being made. And I think people are listening. And that's the important bit, isn't it? Yeah, and we're listening as well. And, you know, to the concerns and the proposals and everything else, you know, we, do, we are very much listening to, the, to what's going on. And while we're talking to the college, it's not long before the academic meeting, which I guess is, as the dean, one of your big moments of the year up in Glasgow. That was, that's coming around the corner pretty quick. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. Um, Glasgow always puts on a great show, got a great programme going on up there. So, yes, that'll be fun to get in touch with people again. And again, you know, going back to the previous issue, you know, I'll be around. I am wanting to listen to a lot of diverse views. So if you're around there from whatever background you are, I'm, you know, please come grab my ear and I'll have, a, I'll have a listen, have a chat. Let's turn our attention to some evidence-based medicine and what's been going on the blog over the last couple of months. Let's see if we can chat through July and August. Always a bit quieter because contributors are having holidays, people like you and me and others, but there is plenty to talk about. Let's start off with one of those hot trauma topics, shall we? Again, in some ways, this diversifies opinion, doesn't it? Uh, let's talk about Reboa. Uh, let's see if I can remember even what Reboa stands for. Uh, resuscitative endovascular balloon occlusion of the aorta, Reboa. This idea that we can block off the main blood vessel supplying blood to the body, the aorta, to stop bleeding. It's always been one of those, well, I, what's the word? We don't, we, yes, we, we just say kind of snazzy, I think, these days, don't we? A snazzy procedure that we've all thought might be one of those things we could do. Does this pop the balloon of Reboa, this trial? Tell us a bit more about it. Well, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, resuscitative is one word. Other people would say retrograde. Pick an R. Pick an R, because it's kind of the, the same sort of thing, the same sort of um, aspiration. But the idea is basically you insert a catheter through the femoral artery, put it into the aorta, and by blowing up the balloon in the aorta, you reduce the amount of distal bleeding. And there's zone one, there's zone two, zone three. Zone one is up in the chest. Zone three is below the renal arteries. And generally speaking, in the UK, we're mostly doing zone three. Now, Zaf, um, Kasim, who's one of our um, St. Emelin's contributors, um, he does and knows a lot about this from his experience in the US. And they do do a bit more zone one out there. Anyway, let's talk about the UK Reboa trial. The UK Reboa trial, randomised control trial, looking at patients with what is believed to be exsanguinating hemorrhage. They put the, and an injury which might be... Um, amenable to supportive therapy using Reboa. They put the Reboa in and they followed these patients up for 90 days to see what their mortality was. I'll tell you what they did first and then I'll tell you why I've got a little bit of concerns about the results. So they planned to get 120 people through, but they stopped at 90 patients in the end um, because it seemed actually that the mortality in the group getting the Reboa was higher than in the group getting standardised care. And that was about 54% versus 42% mortality. So you know, 12% difference, that's quite a lot, actually. And so really very significant. They also found that the patients getting the Roboa took longer to go to theatre and a number of other parameters were worse. So it was stopped early on the basis of this. So you think, right, OK, on the basis of that, let's not do Roboa. But let's just wind back a bit. Why are we doing Roboa? We're doing Roboa because we've got somebody who we think has got exsanguinating hemorrhage. 
But this trial is based in the emergency department. So if you've truly got exsanguinating hemorrhage in this group of patients, and in the trial, the average time to get to the emergency department was 90 minutes, I, I can't, I'm struggling to put those two things together in my head. And if you're truly bleeding to death really rapidly, so much you need a balloon in the altar, you can't really wait 90 minutes. So the question about whether Reboa works, yes or no, is, well, in this trial, in this group of patients who wait quite a long period of time to get to the emergency department, no. But it might still have an effect if you've got very short pre-hospital times or if this becomes a pre-hospital intervention, as it has done with some services around the world, including people like London Hems. It answers one question. It doesn't answer all the questions. And I think Zaf, in his um, presentation of how he's done it on the blog, really articulates that very well. And I would encourage people to read his blog before they decided whether they were going to institute Reboa, yes or no, from a pre-hospital service or in service with very short pre-hospital times. Quite a lot of patients that managed to get through, 90. I mean, I, I've never seen it. I've never seen it, never been part of it, never never had it in our department. But even to get that many done is, is quite something. But I think you're right, aren't you? We are looking to have earlier interventions in these patients. And, and yeah, an hour and a half. I mean, that's a long time, isn't it? And I presume that's from time of injury. And um, yeah, you're right. I've not seen it done in uh, my centres. We don't do it. Although some of the hospitals which I take patients into on HEMS were part of the trial. I think there are certain patterns of injury where you can make a, a reasonable pathophysiological argument for this. And I've seen video and I've seen cases presented where there are fairly fairly convincing anecdotal cases so it may be and we've seen this in quite a few trauma trials haven't we and, and we've discussed this a few times in that some of these trials where you're looking at a really quite niche group of patients and quite specific niche interventions the impact of those is probably in a very small number of patients and when you do this kind of rct the real signal may be blurred amongst the background I, I, it's, it's a tricky area to do research in but on the basis of this in the emergency department, fairly long pre-hospital times. It doesn't seem to be the way to go at the moment. So Reboa, as stands now, is not something for the emergency department in a current pre-hospital system that they had there. We can sort of knock that on the head. But there is other stuff we can do, or at least people are always thinking of stuff we can do, isn't it, aren't they? So uh, there's another post here, again, a journal club post, the Top Art Study. About a, now, help me out here. Artes Sunate. It's always tricky with new drugs that you don't use, isn't it? Clopidogrel or clopidogrel? I, I don't know. And I feel laughed at whichever one I choose. So how do we say this drug? Well, I don't actually know, but I'm going to call it artesanate. Let's go with that. That sounds good. Your artesanate to my artusinate. But artesanate in bleeding trauma patients. This is a malaria drug, isn't it? It is. Yeah. And it's quite an effective malaria drug, actually. So what the hell is it doing with trauma? Well, I think this really stems from some other papers we reviewed a few years back. There was a really nice paper that we reviewed again from London that looked at when patients, do you remember the one when, when do trauma patients die? And what we've seen is this shift over the years with different interventions of trauma patients dying early on in their journey. So bleeding to death at the scene, and then we were better at that. And then they were bleeding to death in the emergency department, we got better at that. And then we were bleeding to death in the first 24 hours, we got better at that. Now we're seeing this, a much greater proportion of patients dying later in their course due to multi-organ failure, basically on the intensive care unit, getting into these sort of inflammatory cycles and things going wrong. And there's a real interest at the moment that the next shift in improving mortality in the very severely injured patients might be about modifying that immune response in those patients who make it onto the intensive care unit. That was a long preamble about why is artesanate 
being considered for this because that's where they think the effect might be. And there's some lab work around this, as there often is, before you start testing these things in humans, that this might have a benefit. RCT, um, quite small, and they plan to get quite a few patients through, but they terminated at 90 patients who were involved in this. And they were randomized initially to two doses of artesanate, either 2.4 milligrams per kilogram or 4.8 or placebo. And they changed that later on with some new data and then everybody got 4.8. So there's a slight asymmetry um, in the data, but not enough to really change what we're going to do here. And they follow those patients through and looking essentially at their SOFA scores. And SOFA scores is not a majorly unreasonable thing to look at because that's an ICU sort of assessment of their inflammatory response and things. Unfortunately, they had to try stop the trial early. And that was due to the increased number of um, VTE events in the artesanate arm. And they didn't hadn't shown any sort of major impact on mortality at that stage either. The data would seem to suggest that there's no particular benefit from this. There's no, it's unlikely that there's a massive benefit. Admittedly, there's a small number of patients here, but it was stopped on the basis of harm. I think it's interesting. There's a good editorial that goes along with this, and I'd suggest if you're interested in this, I'll go and have a look at that as well. It does talk about the, the the fact that we do need to look at this inflammatory response, and this may be the first of other drugs which we look at, but also that the story for testinate may not be over yet. The complexity of the trial and maybe some asymmetry in the patients means that this may be need to be looked at again in the future. For now, no, definitely not for mainstream. Definitely of interest in terms of modification of inflammatory response. Other drugs maybe will certainly see looked at. This one may come back. Let's see. And as with all the papers we discuss, if you're looking for the references to where they are, you can find those all on the blog site and they're all linkable. So you just a simple click away. But this paper was from Intensive Care Medicine, just published earlier this year on 20th of July. So you can find it there. And Corinne Bro, he was one of the authors, a great friend of St. Emlyn's from Royal London, always interested in pushing the boundaries of what we can do to help trauma patients. And this is really where some of the exciting stuff for us is going to be in the next decade, isn't it? We're trying to get better at the simple stuff. And that, of course, for me, that's the key thing, isn't it? Early, aggressive, appropriate resuscitation. But now it's, well, what are people dying of further down the line? Because as you say, hopefully we're getting them to survive longer but it's how we help people survive with a good outcome. Keep an eye out for that one. Go and have a look at it. Look at the editorial, the top art study, Artesunate for Bleeding Trauma Patients. Links are all on the blog. Simon, should we stick with trauma as we're talking about trauma? This is a bit of a journal club post again about can we identify life-threatening injuries by using clinical examination? Now, as somebody who's quite into medical education at an undergraduate level, I see lots of medical students learning how to do clinical examination. And I see them palpating apex beats and I see them looking for tracheal deviation and I see them looking at JVPs. And here this is the idea about how useful is clinical examination in the pre-hospital environment. I have to admit, as a relatively senior and by senior, I just mean old person. I found that I'm so much more dependent on history and in the pre-hospital environment, that's kind of mechanism of injury. And just the first look at what a patient looked like, I find that the biggest thing I base my decisions on. And then in the department, it's really about the history. And I found a clinical examination less and less useful. Is that where you think this is going? Do you think that's part of what this is talking about? My perspective is that certainly working in pre-hospitally, I'll often take a patient in and say, my suspicions of this patient's injuries are da-da-da-da-da-da. And then I'm always really keen. And one of the, well, actually one of the amazingly fantastic things about working in pre-hospital care is that we often get, we almost always get follow-up on what happens to our patients, which from a learning and development perspective is just awesome. You know, can't, 
can't advocate it for enough. I know we've talked about it on St. Emmons loads in the past, but so fantastic. But I do really want to know what happens to the patients. And I guess I've been always been a bit disappointed if I would take a patient and go, I think they've got a fractured pelvis and they haven't. Or, you know, I think the abdomen's okay, but actually it turns out they've got a litre of blood in it. Maybe I'm not that bad, but you know what I mean. And I think what this paper does, and it's not methodologically the best paper in the world, um, because it's a retrospective diagnostic accuracy study. And we know that retrospective studies aren't great because they rely on people making great notes at the time and then comparing to the outcomes, which is essentially what they did. They took a big database of patients and they compared what the final diagnosis was of the patients compared to what their pre-hospital records were. Just under a thousand patients were looked at, mostly male, that's what you'd expect. And they found that actually, you know, clinical examination or the you know pre-hospital physicians clinicians assessment wasn't particularly good so things like you know sensitivity is about 66 percent varying by region not particularly brilliant really i guess i'm not that surprised by this what's a little bit unclear from me is what i really want to want to dig down into is whether or not when people are supposedly missing or not finding an injury is it one which would have benefited from intervention at a much earlier stage because that's what's important, really, isn't it? It's not, did you miss the pneumothorax? It's, did you need the pneumothorax which required treatment at an earlier stage that didn't happen until later? In some respects, I'm not too disappointed about my abilities and how this, this sort of pans out in, in practice. But I think it is important that we're still very reliant on diagnostic imaging to make sure in the polytrauma patients that we're not missing significant injury. It's a funny term, isn't it? Missed injury. Because often yeah. we don't miss stuff. It's just that it takes a bit of time to find. I remember one of my general surgical consultant colleagues who's since retired, but I had a lot of time for. He was a properly good clinician. And he would say, look, I don't, I don't understand why we think in the emergency department you're going to make a diagnosis when you've got four hours. I have patients for two to three days, CT scans and ultrasounds. I still don't know what's wrong with them. <laughs> and I think he had a point, really, that time is often the best diagnostic tool, isn't it? Or, well, time or a CT scanner, frankly. And you're right, aren't you? It's about finding the stuff which you need to intervene on. That's not just in the pre-hospital environment. That's in the emergency department. That's further on down. It's about doing the things that need to be done when you find them. And we have a very good system, as I'm sure many of listeners do, about people looking at x-rays once the patient's been discharged. And then we call them because we found this very insignificant but present pneumothorax. And we all beat ourselves up because we didn't see this little rim of air that a radiologist has seen in a darkened room on a very large screen with a high definition screen so they can see everything that's going on. And and then there's a big, oh, well, you missed it. It matters if if the outcome. And I think missing things is is part of medicine and it's not really missing. It's just I didn't spot it at the time. I don't know. Am I being too simple? No, I think it's, I think it's the key point, isn't it? You know, there's things which are not seen or not identified and there are, and there are, there are important things which were not seen. And that, that line between those two things is really, really important. And there are trials out there, for instance, like the Otter Ankle Rules. I think that was one of the first times when people really looked and, and thought that actually those line, those rules are actually designed to find clinically important fractures, not just fractures. So actually, guys, don't know whether you know this, but if you use some of the decision rules that are out there, it will miss fractures. They just don't matter. I think it's a much better way of um, thinking about it. And also, and you, you allude to the point really well, Ian, is when we as senior doctors are then having a chat to um, our colleagues, because it's often us, us who gets the report, you know, Dr. X has missed an ankle fracture. Again, how we use that language, how we feed back to them, how we have the conversation, how we support their development is very important. Small bits of language can have potentially quite adverse outcomes on people's uh, belief in their abilities and competence and confidence. 
those conversations are so important, aren't they? And and it just highlights yet again, doesn't it, that we're very prepared to talk about the stuff that hasn't gone well with the doctors and clinicians that are training. And yet maybe we don't spend enough time saying, oh, do you know what? For those 100 ankle x-rays you looked at, you got 99 of them brilliantly right. And then on one, you missed an avulsion fracture, which needed treating as a sprain. But let's focus on the one, shall we? It doesn't. It's not always the right, right way round, is it? And sometimes I feel that from other teams, a bit of, oh, look what we found. You didn't spot it. Well, it's only if it really matters to the patient, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I, I will always um, quote um, an interesting joint audit meeting some many years ago. So nobody, I don't think, who's current in my department at the moment, um, where the radiologist came back to us and then said, we're very concerned that 90% of your um, uh, head CTs for a headache are normal. And we went, God, 10% are abnormal. And it was just, it was just that meeting of perspectives and both sides got it. It's absolutely true, isn't it? If you're only getting back CT scans with abnormalities on, you are not scanning enough people. <laughs> it's so true. That's the thing about clinical examination. Please, everybody, if you're if you're near the beginning of your training or even near the end, please don't stop examining people and say, oh, Ian and Simon said it's useless. It doesn't really matter. That's, that's not what we're saying. And if you're in medical school, particularly if you're in the medical school I'm affiliated with, then you still need to learn how to do clinical examination. And in an OSCE, don't say at the start, I don't need to examine the cardiovascular system because this dude looks okay. And I don't <laughs> think it's important. And please then don't quote me. So examination is important, knowing how to do it. And actually, the thing I've come to terms with is you can only know what to do and what not to do when you've really learned the basics and you've got the whole thing there. So you need the fundamentals to then stop doing it. You can't stop doing it at the beginning. At least, please don't stop doing things like that. Another Journal Club article, Simon, talking about cardiac arrest centre. So again, we're talking about that that bridge between life and death. We've talked a bit about trauma. We've talked about clinical examination. And this is about cardiac arrest centres. This has been a big deal over the last, well, it comes and goes, doesn't it? Hubs and spokes, all of that business. Major trauma centres is similar. Does bypassing to get to cardiac arrest centres help? Well, this is, I thought this was absolutely fascinating. And and to be honest, not what I expected to find. So this is the arrest trial. And I must admit, I didn't even know this was going on, which is a bit of a surprise because I normally try and keep my eye out for for interesting stuff. And this is really interesting. So it's a prospective and multi-centre, open-label, randomised controlled trial done in London where they took patients over the age of 18 who had had a cardiac arrest and who didn't have signs that required them to go automatically to go to a PCI centre. So you had a cardiac arrest, you've got ROSC, so all these patients have you know, um, got ROSC. And if you've got ST elevation or you clearly need a coronary intervention, you'd go anyway. But the rest of them, so the patients, and we, we see quite a few of these on HEMS, don't we? Patients, do they then go to your cardiac arrest centre, um, which is a PCI-based centre, or do you just go to your local emergency department? And I've got to say, if you'd have asked me this a couple of months ago, I'd have said, well, clearly you take them to the cardiac arrest centre, because not just because of the... The fact that they can have PCI, although some of them will need it, but probably a cardiac cause. And so they can see an electrophysiologist or something like that. Well, RCT across London involving 32 hospitals, prospectively done, and they enrolled 862 patients, of whom about 50% went to a PCI centre, to a cardiac arrest centre, 431 went to standard care, so 50-50. And they found no difference, which really surprised me. 63% of them survived at 30 days in the cardiac arrest centres versus 63% in the standard care group. Now, very interesting, uh, particularly as locally we're thinking about doing something pretty similar to this fairly soon. And actually in my practice pre-hospitally, I would 
preferentially take people to a cardiac centre. So, for instance, you've had a young person who's keeled over, they had a VF cardiac arrest. They've been shocked out of it. They've come back. They've got ROSC. And they've got a choice of going to a cardiac centre or to the local hospital. There's a five mile difference. I've got to say I'd normally take them the other place. I was really surprised at this. Why didn't it make a difference? There's a couple of reasons. One is it really doesn't make a difference. Two, some of these patients who get ROSC don't have a cardiac problem. And so taking them to a standalone, particularly cardiac centre might be a bad idea. If you've had a subarachnoid hemorrhage and that's why you've had a cardiac arrest and you get taken to the cardiac arrest centre, that might be worse for you. So there might be a group of patients who get worse. It may be that because London's actually quite a small area, honestly, the differences in distances may not make that much difference. And it may be because if you've got a good cardiac network, you can do secondary transfers. So you go to your local, they realise it's actually a cardiac stuff and you can chuck you down the road a bit later. So there may be sort of reasons here, but this is a really good paper. And I love papers. I genuinely love papers that really, really challenge my pre-existing views. And this is definitely one of them. One of the things which I'm trying to relearn, I think, and come to terms with, and a lot of this is down to Steve Smith over in the US, is this idea of occlusive myocardial infarction and who needs to go to a cath lab and who doesn't need to go to a cath lab and and all of that business. And this gets into this a little bit in that I suppose that a few of these, well, especially the younger ones with cardiac arrest are likely to have an arrhythmogenic cause for which the cause is unlikely to be an occlusive MI, isn't it? They're likely to have a primary problem like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or something similar to that that you know those pictures we see of sportsmen dropping down on a field and having 20 minutes of CPR and then walking back out and and appearing for their team six months later they haven't got blocked coronary arteries and they have not got an occlusive myocardial infarction by the way if you don't know the term occlusive myocardial infarction seek, seek out Steve's stuff uh his ECG blog and he's been on a couple of podcasts recently it's fascinating. This idea we need to move away from ST elevation and non-ST elevation to the idea of, is it blocking an artery? But all of these things, I'm starting to think a bit differently about. What is a cardiac arrest? What is return of spontaneous circulation? The more I see it, these patients aren't losing completely their circulation. I just can't feel it because they're hypotensive. Is it an arrhythmia or is it another cause? It's actually becoming quite interesting to me that we probably need to think some of those paradigms we have in ALS and maybe consider about how we think about them. Yeah, I agree. And we talked in a recent podcast, didn't we, about this concept of downtime and what does that mean? And, and, you know, concluded that it doesn't really mean anything at all. So there's a lot of parlance and there's a lot of sort of assumptions and there's a lot of custom and practice, which I genuinely think we're at a place, I agree with you, I think we're at a place where we can start questioning this. And, you know, as I said before, I love papers that really, really challenge my prior beliefs. And this is one of them. So there's a lot of evidence-based medicine there. So I've covered four different papers. As I say, all are linked on the blog site. So if you want to go and read the paper, and we would always encourage you to do so, don't just believe what we say. We're just two old men chuntering away. Then go and have a look. Go and have a look. Now, there were some couple of other things that I think it's worth highlighting that are worth a read and probably don't translate so well into the podcast format. But Pete Hume's done a couple of posts about the use of ultrasound in, well, in children particularly, and how we can use it for diagnosis. I have to admit, I don't really see many children anymore. Uh, I've seen my own children, but I don't really see kids at work. Are you using ultrasound more in your paediatric practice, Simon? I know you're still involved. Yeah, so I still work at um, the the children's hospital and I really enjoy it. We do use ultrasound a lot. Generally, though, it's with our radiology colleagues doing it because we have such fantastic paediatric radiologists, genuinely awesome um, individuals. 
And so we don't necessarily need to do it that much ourselves. I do occasionally use it. I do. I know it's controversial in trauma, but I still find it useful for looking at chests, particularly in trauma in children. I mean, the, in the rare but um, severely injured children. And I still look at the abdomen. I appreciate that it's not the best test in terms of guiding what I do. But I, if it's not going to take much time, then I will have a quick look before we head off to CT. But do remember, CT is the definitive investigation for abdominal trauma in children. So ultrasound is there. And this, these are great posters. I mean, he's written so much as Pete. It's into two separate posts. And it's worth having a look about all the different things that we can look at. And obviously, children, the concern is radiation. And we don't want to be irradiating well anybody if we can avoid it, uh, particularly now. The, the children who are growing up now, by the time they're mid-20s, will be scanning everything, as far as I can tell. So uh, let's limit the amount of radiation they get before they get to the adult side of the department where we scan, scan, scan. Keep scanning. Always scan. Do another scan. Let's scan them. I'm sure they'll be fine. Let's scan. And uh, so, yeah ultrasound it's an in- and it's also an interesting thing we can get experts in which i always think is a, a really nice thing and then the final thing to just talk about simon is liz crow this idea about burnout and is it burning us out and perhaps this is a good note to finish on there's a lot of negativity around at the moment isn't there and there's a lot of talk of burnout we talked a bit in passing about some of the stuff on i'm going to still call it twitter i don't mind he's not going to come after me is he so we talked a lot about the way that the conversation goes on on twitter and and how work can feel pretty negative and this has got this perspective which i think is really important about is this burnout thought burning us out what is burnout how can we think about it? We've talked about it a lot on the podcast before, and I know you've had quite a lot of thought, and it's probably changed your mind, I think, about how you think about it all. Yeah, so I think one of the things that Liz talks, and I'm going to have a listen to the podcast, uh, the, the video, which we've got the link on the blog for. Interesting, the term burnout, as originally designed, was not not at all supposed to be used in the way that we do it now, and it's not supposed to be used around individuals. And the person who invented it has been on record multiple times to say that the term is being badly used and even the tests for burnout are being inappropriately used in emergency in, in medicine. You know, you can say, well, why is that a problem? Because it's clearly still measuring people who are under stress. Well, the problem with it is, is the burnout tools are designed to look at how organizations should change, not at individuals. And it's being it's being mal maluse, basically, badly used. What's more important is that we consider, you know, what are the work stresses that are out there and how do we develop those and then also how do we what are the solutions so for instance you know is going part-time a solution for burnout well well it might be but actually if 100% of your time is absolutely rubbish because work is so bad because there's so much work stress there then making it 80% still means that it's 80% still rubbish and actually that's not necessarily the solution what we need to be doing is making the work itself the environment the support um, that great post that you did, Ian, about, you know, the hierarchy of, of educational needs, absolutely superb, looking at those kind of things. There's this real danger that if we put everything under burnout, it blames the individual. It means that they've got to find the solution that is making them better or making them more resilient. And that's not really perhaps where our major efforts should be going. And now, please don't think that we're saying that there aren't a lot of individuals who are under a lot of stress and work stress can be tough and it can be really bad and we've named we've sort of misused the term haven't we now because burnout we regard as an individual diagnosis rather than a systemic problem what we're trying to say i think is that we need to get organizations to realize that it's their responsibility 
to make sure they put their employees in the best situation they can to work. And I love that idea. Yeah, if work is bad when you're doing 100%, work will still be bad when you do 80%. It's just that you might have some more time at home to recover. Work should not be bad 80% anyway. And we can't let people get away with that being the right idea. And I guess this comes back to your role as a dean about how we support people who are training and developing and researching in emergency medicine and make it a sustainable career that we want it to be. I, I know, again, we're two old dudes who were relatively settled in nice portfolio careers, who've been through it all and look back and say, oh, well, in my day, in my day, it was very different. And that's not comparable. But we can do more to help all of those who are training and, and working with us, can't we? Yeah, I think you're, you're absolutely right. It, and our, our, our history was different. And that's the only word I'd use. And it was just different. But I do think that some of the terminology which has been bounded around appears to blame the individuals. And I'm not sure, well, I'm quite sure that that's not the best strategy for us to get out of where we are at the moment. And yeah, the college college can support people by setting standards and by setting guidelines. But ultimately, we can't change what happens at Department X. And we do need the buy-in of the clinicians, the managers, the other health professionals to make those things happen, to develop you know, and maintain a sustainable workforce. I'll finish this section merely by saying being given free ice lollies doesn't make up for not having enough toilets. Just going to put it out there. Uh, you're not wrong. Although a nice lolly is a nice thing on a hot day, but summer has now gone. Simon, that is two months worth since a slightly longer edition from us. But that's uh, covering what's happened over summer. We're now back on target, I hope. You've got lots going on. And you're actually off abroad, aren't you? Barcelona this weekend? Yep, it's Houston, uh, European Society of Emergency Medicine. I say this every year. It's an absolutely fantastic conference. Do not forget that in the UK, although we look very often to Canada, to America and to Australia as our partners in emergency medicine because they speak English and because we've got a lot of history together, cannot underestimate the amazing work which is being done on the continent. I would strongly recommend that UK emergency physicians engage with our European colleagues. They are doing some fantastic work and we can mutually learn an amazing amount of stuff from each other. And USEM is a really great platform for doing that. Simon, as ever, it's been a joy to catch up uh, and lovely to see you looking so well. And we'll be back soon on the St. Emily's podcast to bring you yet more content. And as ever, please do like, subscribe, do all those things you're supposed to do. And if you're keen to take part and you'd like to contribute, we're always interested to hear from people who might like to review a paper or write about a topic or or just get, get something out there that you can share with people that you think is important. We've got a bit of a, a site going. It's been around a while. People tend to look at it, a few people. So if you'd like to get in touch, just use the contact us button on the blog site itself. But for now, keep enjoying your emergency medicine. For those of us in the UK, autumn is in the air and the leaves are falling and mellow mists and all that stuff. Keep smiling and take care.